Father, Son, and Spirit. We praise you. You were high and lifted up. You were good. You were worthy of all of our admiration, all of our worship, all of our devotion. Thank you for speaking to us. Lord, thank you for giving us this word. It's, 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 it's kind of a hard word. But thank you, you don't hold back. You speak the truth to us because you are the truth. And you lay out for us the way because you are the way. We pray, Father, that you would teach us by your spirit today. That you would work in our hearts. That you would convict us of sin. And that you would convict us of your grace and your mercy that you would change us, that you would make us more and more like Jesus, who is our only hope in life and death. Teach us, Father. Teach me, Father. Work in us, Father. Work in me, Father. Work in our body and use us. Use us to be a blessing in our homes and and on our streets and in our neighborhoods and at work and at play. Lord, will we be salt and light, a light to the nations. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning again. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and along with Mitchell Carter, I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And if you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, we are really, really thankful uh, that you were here, and I'm going I'm to make a big ask. If you're visiting with us, when the service is over, would you come find me? I'd love to just meet you. I'd love to just shake your hand and welcome you to City Church. Um, so find me. A couple of weeks ago, um, our, our neighborhood group uh, was meeting. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with neighborhood groups, neighborhood groups are essentially City Church's small group ministry. Um, they are, they're, they're small Pods of people in our congregation who gather together weekly or bi-weekly to do life together, to share life together. They're great places to connect to one another. They're great places to, to care for one another and to be cared for by one another. And they're great places that encourage us to look at life, look at the ordinary, look at the everyday and, and see the ministry opportunities that God has laid before you. Um, our neighborhood groups, it has been said, and I think this is true, are really the, the first place of congregational care in the life of this body. And so if you're not a part of a neighborhood group, I would encourage you, strongly encourage you, prayerfully consider joining one in the fall. They are, um, they are really God's grace to you and to me. Well, a couple of weeks ago, our neighborhood group was meeting, and uh, I opened our time of discussion with a question. What are your Advent questions? Now, again, if you haven't been with us, you might not, uh, you, you're, you don't know what we've been talking about for the last couple of months, or the last couple of weeks. Um, for the last couple of weeks, we have been wrestling with this theme that we live in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. We live in what theologians call the already not yet. 
Advent is this time of year where we remember and we prepare for the first coming of the Lord. But Advent is also a time of year. In fact, it was historically, this was its focus. It was a time that looked forward to the return of Jesus, to the second coming of Jesus. And and what we do during the Advent season is really remember what has been true of the church since Jesus ascended into heaven to take his seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty to rule and reign over all of the universe. And that is, we are awaiting people. We are a, we are a longing people. We are a yearning people. And here's the thing, waiting is hard. Um, Christmas is just a couple of days away. And for most of us in this room, that's not a big deal. But if you're a five-year-old, Christmas seems like it's forever away. And waiting can be hard. Waiting for Jesus, for his return, is hard. And it raises all kinds of questions, right? If Jesus really is ruling and reigning over all of the universe, why are there so many places in this world that suffer from political unrest and violence? If Jesus really is ruling and reigning over the universe, why are there so many places in this world where people are starving to death? Where people don't have access to clean water? Where people don't have access to medications to fight the simplest diseases. If Jesus really is is ruling and reigning over all of the universe, why is there such a large homeless population? Why do people sleep in cardboard boxes or tents? If Jesus really is ruling and reigning, why is there such deep polarization in our culture? liberal, conservative, black, and white. Why? Again, a couple weeks ago, I asked my neighborhood group, what are your Advent questions? And one of the guys responded, well, the question I have is, didn't Jesus say he was going to return soon? Didn't Jesus say he was going to return soon? The answer is yes. Four times in John's apocalypse, the book of Revelation, Jesus says, they're in the red letters in your Bible, I am coming soon. There's a question behind that question. Didn't Jesus say he's going to come soon? And that question behind the question is the Advent question. What's taken so long? Doesn't he care about all the injustice that is taking place in this world? Why why isn't he doing something? Is he ever really going to return? Have you ever... Ask that question. 
I, I know I have. And the good news for us is we're not the first people to ask that question. In fact, these are the exact kinds of questions that Peter is wrestling with in our passage. In fact, the question that Peter is wrestling with our question is this, Jesus, are you ever coming back? Now, let me give you a little context. The passage that we read this morning comes from a letter. It's the second letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a network of churches that, that existed in what is today modern-day Turkey. Uh, what we learn as we read through this letter in chapter 1 is that Peter is going to die. Peter knows it. He says that the Lord told him, you're going to die. And, and the evidence that we have received from early tradition is that Peter was actually executed by Roman authorities during the reign of the Emperor Nero. Sometime after the great fire around 64 AD and sometime before Nero's death, which was around 68 AD. What that tells us is that this letter is a weighty letter. It's a, it's a heavy letter. It's an intense letter. It's significant. It's significant because it is Peter's last words, his swan song, his parting address. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow night, what would you say to the people around you? What would you say to the people that you care most deeply about? That's what we find in Peter's letter. He addresses his letter to the beloved. The beloved. The beloved of the Lord. Why is Peter writing this letter? Well, there is this growing group of teachers, corrupt teachers, who are leading the Christians that Peter's writing to astray through twisted theology and through corrupt living. And Peter's goal that we see in verse 2 is to remind the church of what the holy prophets prophesied about and what Jesus commanded through the apostles so that they might live lives of holiness and godliness as they wait and hasten for, which means desire earnestly as they wait and hasten for the coming day of the Lord. What did the prophets of old predict in Jesus' command through the apostles? That there is a day when the Lord will return. When the Lord will come back to earth. And when he comes back to earth, he is going to judge the living and the dead. And he is going to make all things new. And what is Christ's command? Think about the parables. Be ready. Be ready. Now, I know that for, for some folks, the idea of a God who judges is, is a non-starter. Um, I, I, I don't want a God who judges. I want a God of love. Who, who really needs a God like this? 
Well, what I would suggest to you is, is you and, and I do. Here's the thing. We are all, we, we all have a sense of justice. In fact, I would argue that we are actually born with a sense of justice. If you don't believe me, just watch a child who has been wronged. What happens? A five-year-old's playing with a toy. Another five-year-old walks in the room, punches that kid, and takes the toy. What does the first child, the wrong child, do? You know what he does. You know what she does. Either there's a war going on in that room, or that little child comes running to you, mommy and daddy, and, and says, this is wrong. This person has wronged me. They don't use those words. I don't know what words they use because my youngest is 19. I can't remember. But you know what I'm talking about. Or what happens when a young child is is wrongfully called out, wrongfully accused, wrongfully has to bear some consequences that she or he did not deserve? What, What happens? What are the words you always hear? That's not fair. That's not fair. It's, it's wired in us. Justice is wired in us. More than that, we want justice. We really do. We want justice. Think about racism, sexual assault, economic injustice, child abuse. We all want justice. We want justice for the oppressed. We want justice for the violated. We want justice for the marginalized. We want justice for the weak. We want justice for the voiceless. We want justice for the poor. We want justice. It's wired in us. But some of us don't want the justice of the Lord. Some of us are very uncomfortable with this idea. And yet from Genesis to Revelation, we are taught that God is just. He is holy. He is righteous. And he is one day going to return to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. If you don't believe in the justice of the Lord you've got a problem. Because if there is no justice in the end, there is no justice today. Not real justice. If there is no justice in the end, there is no good and bad today. If there is no justice in the end, then there's really no difference between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. If there really is no justice in the end, Nothing really matters because in the end, we're all going to die. The earth, the sun's going to burn out and then nothing. That's all she wrote. You see, you can't live without justice. But if you want to try, I want to remind you, be consistent and know this. If, if you don't believe that there's justice in the end, you can't call anything today wrong or bad or evil. Sex trafficking, you can't call it bad, wrong, or evil. Slavery, oppression, 
You can't call it bad, wrong, or evil. Murder, robbery, you can't call it bad or evil or wrong. Wrong isn't a valid category for you. Can you live with that? I don't think you can. This is why the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf writes, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. We want justice. We are wired for justice. We need a God who is just, who will bring justice. So what are these corrupt teachers teaching? Verse four, Peter writes, these scoffers will say, what is the promise, where is the promised coming? He's talking about, they're talking about the, the coming of Jesus. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying, hey, look around. Nothing, nothing really ever changes. From, from, as, from as far back as, as, as we can remember, nothing has ever really changed. What makes you think, if nothing has ever really changed, that something is going to change? That, 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 that something is going to happen, that God is going to return and, and change things? He hasn't done anything up to this point. What's Peter's response to these false teachers? Peter's response initially is not to directly answer their question um, about the future, but to remind them about their past, about the past. He says, remember, remember, he's already come. Peter reminds his readers and he reminds us that from the very beginning of time, God has been deeply involved in the nitty-gritty of life in this world. In verse 5, we read that, that, that God created the word, world by the word of his power. He was involved. In verse 6, we are reminded that God judged the world in the days of Noah. And then, in Jesus, the one who commands... God himself took on flesh and personally entered into the nitty-gritty of our world. And he died, nailed to a piece of wood. Now, why would, why, why would, why would God do that? As the author of Hebrews puts it, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Or as the apostle Peter tells us in verses 8 and 9, Jesus died because he doesn't want any of us to perish. That, that all should reach repentance. Think about that. Do you understand what that means? Who among us will be able to stand before the judgment seat of the Lord? Who among us? Not the good, not the best, not the top 
not to the morally upright. It's the people who know they aren't good, but who looked, who looked to Christ Jesus in faith. To look, they looked to Christ Jesus to have paid their debt. It is the people who believe in the words of the prophet Isaiah that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is the gospel, folks. That on the cross, Jesus, God the Son, was judged for our sins. He was judged for our apathy. He was judged for our anger. He was judged for our lust. He was judged for our impatience. He was judged for our self-righteousness. And he gave us what was rightfully his. His righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And do you know what that means? It means that we don't dread the coming day of the Lord. But instead, hasten it. We look forward to it. We long for it. We, we, we desire it. This is the God who is come. This is the God who has come. And this is the God who is coming back. This is the God who is returning. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is, a thou- is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. You may or, or may not know this. But Peter is actually quoting a psalm, Psalm 90. It's a psalm, it's the only psalm that's attributed to Moses. Psalm 90, verse 4, Moses writes, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. What are both Moses and Peter trying to say? They're saying that God, who is eternal, does not experience time the same way you and I, who are finite, experience time. Our perspective and his perspective on time are radically different. God is infinite and we are finite. God is the inventor of time and he exists outside of time and above time and our lives are little more than a blip on the map. Beloved, Jesus' understanding of soon is very different than your understanding of soon. Again, think about it. We are like little children four days from Christmas. It seems like an eternity. It's only four days, right? But to us, it seems like an eternity. What I'm trying to say is this. God's relationship to time transcends our finite minds. And when we lose sight of that, we begin to tap our foot and we begin to question, God, where are you? What's taking you so long? Why haven't you already done something? Beloved, what what Peter is calling us to here in this passage is humility. To embrace what we confessed 
What we, what we use is our call to worship, that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts, that his ways and thoughts are infinitely higher than our ways and thoughts. But Peter's not just calling us to humility here, he's also calling us to hope. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. What Peter is saying is that what appears to be slowness isn't really slowness, but rather patience. God's apparent slowness is not because God doesn't care. God's apparent slowness is because he actually does care, deeply cares. What seems like a delay is in fact God's patience in allowing time for people to repent. And if you read this passage carefully, it's for you to repent. The Lord does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But who is all he's talking about here? The controlling part of the sentence? You. What that means is that God's apparent slowness is mercy. It's kindness. It's it's gracious. Beloved, God is not slow. He is being patient with you. Will you repent of your casual view of sin? God's isn't being slow, he is being kind to you. Will you repent of your cavalier view of sin? God isn't being slow, he's being gracious to you. Will you repent of your low view of sin? This passage, it's it's so rich and it raises so many good questions. If, If you read this passage and you think, wow, I don't understand that. I I would love to sit down with you and hear your questions and talk. Listen and talk. So if you have a question, come find me after the service. But let's ask one last question and then we'll come to the table. Why does any of this matter? How should it impact? How should it affect? How should it direct our lives today? Well, Well, Peter's answer to us in this passage is that since the Lord is coming back, it changes everything. In her book, Letters to the Church, Karen Jobes writes, deciding how we live today depends more than we realize on what we believe about the future. Think for a minute. If a young person believes that there is no way she will ever be able to go to college, she is less likely to give her all to her studies in high school. In other words, what you think about the future matters for how you live your life today. The flip side of this is that how you live your life today reveals what you think about the future. What does how you live your life today tell you about what you believe about the future? It tells you something. Look at Verses 11 and 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, 
What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? I want you to see three things. First, our expectation of the Lord's return should serve as an incentive to holy living. Now, why is that? Is it because we are terrified by the the idea of God returning to judge the living and the dead? Well, that doesn't seem to be what, 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 what Peter's getting at here because he, remember, he has, has told his readers and he tells us that we need to hasten for the day of the Lord. We need to desire, we need to long for, we need to look for, forward to the day of the Lord. If, if the day of the Lord was going to be fearful and terrifying and horrible, who in the right minds would hasten for it? Who would long for it? That, it can't be fear that's the incentive to holy living. So what is the incentive? It's love. Think about it like this. How does the Apostle Peter describe the church in Ephesians chapter 5? Come on. He describes it as the bride. The bride. The bride of Christ. And what that means is that right now, the church is engaged to be married to Jesus. It's been a long time since Kathy and I were engaged. We've been married 28 years, and I can barely remember what it was like. But what I do remember is this. That period of time between will you marry me and I do was a period of anticipation, of expectation, of longing, of of excitement, of, 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 of just a ton of different emotions, all good. We were, we were only engaged for four months, folks. <laughs> but but like, like that kid waiting for Christmas on Wednesday, it couldn't come soon enough. That's the picture that the Bible paints for us in our current situation. We are engaged to the Lord. We are looking forward to and longing for his return. Why? Because in the day of the Lord, while it certainly is judgment day, for those who look to Christ in faith, it is our wedding day. This is why the Apostle John can say in his first letter, beloved, we are God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our expectation of the Lord's return should serve as an incentive to holy living. Second, our expectation of the Lord's return should serve to stimulate us to real, genuine, tangible love for our neighbors and good works for the common good. Evangelism and social justice, church planning and economic justice, discipleship and racial justice, participation in corporate worship and feeding the poor. Our goal should be, as Jamie Smith puts it in his book On the Road with St. Augustine, to labor as ambassadors of the way things ought to be. And I would add, will be. 
hoping to bend the way things are to follow the ark of justice, of shalom. We love our neighbor and we work for the common good because those are things our divine fiance loves. And we love what he loves. Our expectation of the Lord's return should serve as an incentive for holy living. It should serve as a stimulant of service to our neighbor. And lastly, our expectation of the Lord's return should serve to cultivate in us a hopeful humility. Recognizing that while our labor is the way we reflect our relationship to Jesus and the way we respond to evil in a fallen world, only his final return will bring the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And as we remember every week when we come to the table, he is going to return. Beloved, if, if Jesus isn't coming back, the entire ballgame has changed. If Jesus never returns, then it really is all about here and now, about how much comfort I can find, about how much power I can grasp, about how much control I can take, about affluence, how much affluence I can amass, about how much pleasure I can experience, about how much self-oriented, uh, self-oriented whatever I can acquire. But if Jesus is really going to return one day, the patience of the Lord makes sense. The promises of the Lord make sense. The call to holiness makes sense. The call to sacrificial service makes sense. The call to stewardship and to radical generosity makes sense. The call to forgiveness makes sense. The call to sacrifice makes sense. The call to holiness makes sense. Beloved, Peter writes to his original audience 2,000 years ago something that he could have written to us today. He is saying, beloved of the Lord, betrothed of the Lord, remember, repent, wait, and hasten. Let's, let's ask the Lord to give us the ability to do what he commands in this passage. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this word. We don't really like to think too much about judgment. It's certainly um, something that, that stands in the way of many people coming to you. It stands in the way of, of us oftentimes coming to you. Thank you, Lord, that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts, but they are always infinitely better than anything we could ever ask or imagine. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember this truth, that the day is coming when you will return as the bridegroom and you will take to yourself the bride. The day is coming when, when, when there is going to be judgment. And that's hard. And Lord, would, would you... 
Would you encourage us in, in, in that thought? Would, would you lead us out to share the gospel with the people around us? Lord, in the day is coming when you will make all things new. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. We, we look forward to you, to seeing you face to face, to beholding you in your beauty and to becoming like you. Oh, we long for that. Would you give us the ability to do these things that you've commanded in this passage? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.